This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Well, good morning. Wow, it's good to see you guys. You did brighten this place up. You are incredible. Look at you. So fun, so excited, so much red out there. This is very exciting. We got a lot going on. We got a lot going on for the faithful today. And it's, it's wise that you came early to pray. You know, I'm with you. I think, the, I think the giants are going down, but it never hurts to pray a little bit. So good call. Good call being here early. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and uh, on behalf of our senior pastor, Ron, and the whole leadership team, I want to welcome you to church today. Ron and his family are heading back up from San Diego right now, and they uh, texted me early this morning, sending their best, letting us know that they were praying for us and excited about what God's going to do here today, and just passing their love along to all of you. So he'll be back next week, and today it's us, and I promised him we wouldn't burn the place down. So uh, don't get too on fire today, because you just, it could get crazy in here. Hey, we are around in the corner today of our Recovery Road teaching series. This has been a five-week series. Uh, We are in week four. We've rounded that corner. Subsequently, we have two weeks left of our Recovery Road teaching series, and we have two weeks left of our Life Group Promotion Month. So if you've been gone for a few weeks, if you've just missed out a little bit, this is your Life Group brochure for the spring. Life groups are gatherings of anywhere from 8 to 15 people uh, that meet together for 12 weeks. We connect with God. We connect with each other. There are a ton of topics. Uh, We had 27 groups when we started. I think 25 groups are still open. Uh, Seven of them are Financial Peace University groups. So they go along with the material that we're teaching right now. They get more in-depth. So uh, over, I think, 120 of us have signed up for Financial Peace groups. It's really exciting what God is doing Uh, in our church. And by the way, so those groups are great, but I want to tell you there are, if I did my math correctly, 18 incredible other types of groups. So there are Bible studies, there are uh, books written by Christian authors, there are video series, there are men's groups, there are women's groups, there are all kinds of different groups in here. If you have not found your group yet, or if you're thinking, man, one group just is not enough for me. I got to have two or three or four. I mean, I have seven days in a week. Why not have seven groups? Um, Make sure you find your group, even while I'm talking, find your group in here. Later on this morning, I'll tell you what to do with that information. So like I said, it's Recovery Road, and the whole theme of this series is experiencing financial freedom. Uh, God wants us to have freedom in every area of our life, including our finances, And we're starting January 2012 with this Recovery Road series as part of a two-year initiative that we're calling at the church our Take Hold Initiative. It comes from 1 Timothy 6.12, where Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to take hold or grab onto the eternal life that you were called to. This incredible life that God called you to, that God wants for you. He says, Timothy, don't be an observer in your life. Don't be a victim of your life. Don't let life pass you by on the sidelines. Be an active participant. Take hold of it. Grab the eternal life that you were called to. And so for the next two years, we're going to be doing a lot of different things. We're not only focusing on these eight areas, but we're going to be focusing, among other things, on eight key areas of life that we sensed God saying, I want you to take hold of these areas of your life, to really grab them, to become active participants in them. And some of you have asked me, well, why did we start with money? Why didn't we start with something like prayer, which we're going to be talking about in this Take Hold Initiative? Or why didn't we start with studying the Bible, which we're going to be talking about in this Take Hold Initiative? Here's why we started with money. Uh, Money in our country, and for many of us, if, if we hold true to the statistics of our country, money is enslaving us, and God wants us to have freedom. 
And the thing about money is that when we are enslaved to money, it's all-encompassing. Have you ever found that? Where it seems like just this big, heavy weight of finances weighs over us all the time, and we can't focus on other things. And so the goal for starting with finances is that we would find freedom here over the course of uh, this series, but really beyond that, as we follow after God's principles in finances, we find freedom. And when we find freedom in our finances, the goal is that it it clears our mind, it opens us up to experience freedom in all other areas of life. And so that's why we're starting with finances as part of this Take Hold initiative. And so the question for us has been, how do we walk individually and as a community down this recovery road financially? How, how do we walk this road? And Ron told us in the very beginning of the series, it starts with personal accountability. It starts with we, not with they. It starts when we stop blaming the government, stop blaming our boss, stop blaming uh, the mortgage company, stop blaming everybody else, and start saying, you know what? Yeah, things have happened, and they weren't easy, and, and they weren't always my fault, but I am going to seek God for biblical truth on finances, and I am going to make a change. I'm going to start changing from the inside. I'm talking to the man in the mirror, and I'm asking him to make a change. That's what we're really, what we're talking about here, uh, is, is really what it is. So uh, I, I can't, I can't do that very well. But Justin can, our worship leader can moonwalk. So talk to him after service. He'll moonwalk for you. So that's where we started. And then I said, uh, the next week, there are five biblical principles to finance. The first one is get out of debt. We got to get out of debt. The Bible is pretty clear about that. He says the borrower is a slave to the lender. Now, the next thing we need to do is we need to begin to act our wage. We cannot act like millionaires when we are thousandaires. Okay, we got to act our wage. And then we got to create a budget. We need to work on saving and investing so that we can be generous. We can be givers because really that's what God wants us to be is generous in all areas of life, including finances. And so it's, it's for, um, for safety. It's for uh, long-term health of our family, but really it's also for generosity. And so God's calling us to all these things. And last week, Ron hit home on some of this stuff uh, when he talked about getting out of debt. He talked on a few of these areas. And I don't know if you noticed, but it got really cold this week. Like it dropped a good 10 or 15 degrees. And I have a theory I think it dropped 10 or 15 degrees this week because so many of us started making some snowballs of hope. And if you're here last week, you know what I'm talking about. We were making some snowballs of hope. We did some debt snowballs to get out of debt. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to the podcast last week. Start making your own snowball of hope. uh, And then go ahead and throw it at somebody. Have a good time with that. This week, today, right here, right now, like Justin said, the most life-changing message he's ever heard, and he hasn't even heard it yet. So uh, get ready. It's going to be incredible. We're talking about saving and investing. And we're going to talk about some of these other principles that I laid out for us a few weeks ago in the context of saving and investing. But we're talking about saving and investing in good times and for tough times. And I'm going to say something right now that I don't think anyone would disagree with, which is rare that I say something that, that I don't think anyone would disagree with, but I don't think you will. You may prove me wrong. Uh, I would say this, and by the way, you have some teaching notes. This is going to be your first teaching note. There's some teaching notes in your program, so you can go ahead and pull those out. Uh, I would say this, and I think you'd agree with me. Wise people save money. At, at our core of who we are, we know this is true. We know it's wise to save money. This is not new information to us. If you came here saying, man, I need some new information today, uh, you're not going to get it. We know at our core who we are, wise people save money. And, and we know it because the Bible is very clear about it. Uh, Proverbs 21 says this. It says, The wise store up f- choice food and olive oil, but fools 
gulp theirs down. And so we see over and over again in Scripture, wise people are savers. But the opposite is also true. The Bible says that it is foolish not to save money. It goes so far to say that if you aren't saving money, you are acting foolishly. And that's a little bit hard, but that's what the Scripture teaches. It says if you're not saving money, you're acting foolishly. In my last life group this past fall, uh, I had one of our most real and, in my mind, the most hilarious icebreaker moments that we'd ever had. And I love icebreakers. I'm a relational kind of guy, so I could do icebreakers all day long. We were passing a hat around, and I put some questions in the hat. Uh, and one of the questions was, what is your biggest pet peeve? And one of the guys in our life group, he pulled this question out, and he read it. He said, what is your biggest pet peeve? That's how I read it, just kind of like that. And his wife, before he could even say anything, his wife said, his biggest pet peeve is idiots. And everyone froze. And he looked at her, and he said, that is my biggest pet peeve, idiots. I can't stand idiots. Idiots are my biggest pet peeve. And, so, and then it was so funny, the next week, so we all kind of stopped, but now we know this guy a little bit more, so we're like, he's being honest. That's his biggest pet peeve is idiots. And okay, thanks for sharing. That's a really honest moment. The next Sunday, we got to church, and Ron used the phrase idiots no less than five times in this sermon. And every time he said it, our whole life group just stared at this guy. We were like, look at you. Look at you. He actually, the guy asked me, did you tell Pastor Ron that I said idiots for my pet peeve? And I said, no, I didn't. Um, but the truth is, everyone is an idiot at some point, right? We all do dumb stuff. And that's why we laughed at this guy, because he's an idiot sometimes. Everybody's an idiot. He's also my best friend. And so I can say that uh, about him. We all do dumb stuff. We're all idiots sometimes. We're all foolish sometimes. And the Bible says, don't be foolish. Don't be dumb. Don't be an idiot. But when it comes to money, can I say that most of America, both the national uh, America and individuals within America, are foolish with our money? We are fools because we don't save and we don't invest. And what we're seeing right now is the outcome of foolish behavior that God tells us not to do. God told us in Scripture thousands of years ago, I want better for you. I don't want you to be foolish with your money. I don't want for you what is happening in our society. I want security for you. I want better for you. So this morning, I'm going to take us into the life of a guy named Joseph. It comes from the end of the book of Genesis, and we're going to give you an overview of his life because it's a big story in Genesis. And then we're going to pick up uh, in Genesis chapter 41, and we're going to get into that Scripture a little bit. But here's what you need to know about Joseph. Joseph is one of 12 sons of a guy named um, Jacob. And Joseph and his 12 brothers uh, become what's known as the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. They are the Jewish people. These 12 families uh, begin to grow and develop, and they become these 12 tribes. So they're a very well-known family in the Bible. And a few things about Joseph. Joseph of the 12, Joseph is his dad's favorite. His dad loves him the most. Uh, his dad loves his wife more than his other uh, wives and concubines. He's his dad's favorite. And in order to show the family that Joseph is the favorite, uh, his dad gives him this robe that's just ornate and beautiful and wonderful. And so uh, it, it's just, it, it shows, it starts this family feud that, that really hits Joseph hard in the end. Uh, which I would say, uh, parents, we're not talking about parenting today, but if you find yourself being more drawn to one child over another— uh, can I tell you, that will not end well for you. Scripture over and over again says, do not play favorites. Don't show favoritism. This story is one of those stories that shows you how bad it can end. So I just want to say right now, as a side note, don't play favorites. It's never a good thing. 
And so from an early age, Joseph is the favorite. And Joseph, God gives Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. So he's this young, we know that he's a handsome and a talented guy. And God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. And one of the dreams that God has him interpret is a dream that tells Joseph that one day he's going to rule over his entire family. He's going to be the ruler of all of them. And like a lot of young, talented people, Joseph is arrogant uh, and he doesn't know when to shut up. And so he goes and tells his family, hey, everybody, guess what? God revealed to me that I'm going to rule over you. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that just the best thing ever? So the combination of these two things has his brothers hating him. Not only is this his dad's, he's his dad's favorite, but now he says he's going to rule over everybody. He's not the oldest son. He's not the one that would naturally become the one to rule over the families. But he says, I'm going to rule over everybody, including mom and dad. And so everything's going good, other than his brothers hating him. Everything's going good for Joseph. He's his dad's favorite. He's talented. He's young. He's attractive. He's got everything going for him. And then one day he goes out to visit his brothers, and they've had enough. They're sick of him. They're tired of him. And they throw him in a pit, and they're going to kill him. Talk about things being really good and then crashing all of a sudden. And so now he's in this pit. They're going to kill him. But they decide, you know what? We're not going to kill him. We're going to sell him. We're going to make some money. So they literally, they tear the robe off his back. They take the clothes off his back and they sell him into slavery to a guy named Potiphar who lives in Egypt. He's an official in Egypt and things are looking really bad for Joseph. But over time, uh, he grows in favor with Potiphar, his master, and he becomes second in command over Potiphar's entire household. He's kind of the one that's in charge. He's like the CEO of Potiphar's household. And things are looking up again. Things are looking really good for him. Well, all of a sudden, Potiphar's wife comes into the story, and she's like an, she's like an Old Testament cougar. She, she loves older guys. She loves these younger guys, right? And she has a thing for Joseph. He's young. He's attractive. He's got power. He's talented. Here's how I picture this in my mind. Okay, I picture Potiphar's wife, like, riding on her elliptical when Joseph walks by, you know, and in her headphones, she hears a little Simon Garfunkel, you know, like, here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus love Yeah. Hey, I didn't make this up, Okay. I'm just, I'm just telling you what it says. So she does. She makes a pass at him. Multiple passes, actually. She's trying to have sex with him. She's trying to get him into bed. And Joseph just says no. He does the right thing. He says no. One day she literally pulls him into bed and she tears his clothes off. She's like, uh, it's, it's not, you can read it. I'm getting, I'll get too embarrassed if I talk about it. And he says, no way, lady. And he runs. He runs from her. He does the right thing. He stands up in the face of temptation for what is true, for what is right. He stands up for God. And we think, this is good. Good job, Joseph. And here's what happens. She accuses him of raping her, and he gets thrown in prison without a trial. And so we've got Joseph with these ups and downs in life. And Joseph's story reminds us that in life, some level of uncertainty is a certainty. It's going to happen. There are going to be uncertain things in our life. And isn't this true with our country? I mean, five years ago, we thought, man, things could not get any better. Our houses were appreciating. Our investments were rising. Things were going good. And then it felt like overnight, someone changed the rules on us. Everything changed. All of a sudden, we have no money. All of a sudden, our house isn't worth anything. Maybe uh, you've had this in your personal life. Maybe it's not financial. Maybe it just hits home a little close in other ways. Everything seems great. Everything seems perfect. And then all of a sudden, uh, you go into the doctor and they tell you your child has cancer. And all of a sudden, everything changes. Everything was perfect. You were way up here. You were a rising star. And then it feels like you're down in a pit and you're crashing. 
Or maybe your, your husband or wife came in one morning and they said to you, you know what, I don't love you anymore. And you were right here, everything was great, and then all of a sudden, everything crashed. Maybe it was the day that your boss called you into his office and said, listen, we have to downsize because the company is going to go under. And, and I'm sorry, after 15 years or 20 years, you, you didn't make the cut. In life, even when we follow God, some level of uncertainty is a certainty. And it's scary for us. The crazy thing about Joseph's life, though, is that Joseph gets himself, uh, has some hard things happen for doing what's wrong, in my opinion, in the beginning. He's arrogant. He talks to his brothers, tells them, hey, I'm going to rule over you, just so you know. He gets himself in a little trouble for his arrogance the first time. But the second time he gets in trouble, he finds himself in prison, he's done everything right. And the Bible gives us this ambiguity, like, wait a minute, if we do everything right, things are supposed to be great. But the truth is, the Bible tells us how the world works. And sometimes even if we follow God completely, we find ourselves upside down, not knowing which way is up. And it's a difficult place to be. But uncertainty is a certainty for all of us. And here's the scary part about it when it comes to our finances. Uh, a, a recent poll in Money Magazine said that 78% of us, which means if it holds true in this room, 8 out of 10 families, over the course of a 10-year period, will experience a negative financial experience, a blow that will cost them somewhere between eight dollars and $10,000 over a 10-year period, statistically speaking. And here's what really scares me. A Gallup poll came out that said 68% of us cannot cover a $5,000 hit without going into debt without some serious financial trouble. So these two statistics should loom over us fairly heavy. In a 10-year period, 8 out of 10 of us, if the statistic holds true, will experience an eight to $10,000 financial hit. But 70% of us can't afford even a $5,000 hit. And so saving and investing is not only wise, it is necessary. It brings hope. It brings freedom for us so we aren't locked back into slavery that Ron talked to us last week about getting out of. See, God tells us this because he doesn't want us to be foolish. He doesn't want us to think this will never happen to me because the truth is it happens even if we follow after God. But here's the great thing about Joseph's story, and we're going to pick up in Genesis 41. It's a story of hope. Even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of difficult times, Joseph's story is a story of hope. And so when we get into Genesis uh, chapter 41, we're in Egypt, which is the most richest and the fertile area in the known world at this time. They are influential. They are powerful. Pharaoh is the ruler of Egypt, which means he basically has control over the law, over the people, over the land. What he says goes. Pharaoh's the man. Pharaoh's in charge. And all of a sudden, one night, Pharaoh has a dream, and this dream freaks him out. It terrifies him. It scares him. And so he calls his magicians and his sorcerers and his rulers together, and he says, does anyone know how to interpret dreams? Because this dream is, it's, it's scaring me. And his guys say, I don't know how to do it. Sorry, we can't help you, Pharaoh. He says, well, do you know anyone who does? And through a set of circumstances that we aren't going to get into, one of his officials says, you know what? I do know a guy who knows how to interpret dreams. His name's Joseph. Right now he's rotting in jail. He was accused of rape. We never gave him a trial. He's just been sitting there waiting. He might be able to help. And so Pharaoh calls Joseph out of prison, and he has him cleaned up. He has him shaved and ready to go, and he brings him before. And then Pharaoh tells his dream to Joseph in chapter 41, verse 15. He says, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said, 
uh, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph says to him, I can't do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer that he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. When out of the river, there came up seven cows. They were fat and sleek. They grazed among the reeds. They were California happy cows. Verse 19, then after them, seven cows came up, and these were scrawny and very ugly and lean cows. These were Wisconsin cows. Ugh. (laughs) Emphasis mine. And I had seen, never seen such ugly cows in the land of Egypt. These lean and ugly cows, they ate the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they'd done so. They looked just as ugly as before. And then I woke up. And then I fell back asleep. Verse 22, And in my dream I saw seven heads of grain. These were full and good. They were growing on a single stalk. Then after them, seven other heads sprouted up. These were withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. These thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. And I told the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dream that Pharaoh has had is one and the same. God has revealed to you what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. Verse 27, the seven lean, ugly Wisconsin cows that came up afterwards are are seven years, uh, and the seven worthless heads of grain that were scorched by the east wind, these are also seven years. And these represent seven years of famine. It's just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown you what he's about to do. Here's what's going to happen, Pharaoh, verse 29. You're going to have seven years of great abundance coming throughout the land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will follow. And underline that. They will, oh, you can't underline it. I think it's up on the screens only, huh? They will follow. And here's what's going to happen. The great years, the years of abundance in Egypt will be forgotten because the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows will be so severe. Man, have you felt like that over the past five years? I don't even remember what it was like to not be in financial trouble. It's all gone now. It's wasted away. I got nothing. Verse 32, the reason that God has given this dream to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. So the gist of it is seven years of plenty, seven years of harvest, followed by seven years of famine. And Joe says this will happen. And this is why we save and invest. One of the key reasons we save and invest is because at some point we will need the money. We will need it. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. When is something going to happen that we'll need some financial uh, support for? Let's pick up in verse 33. Because I love what Joseph does. He doesn't just interpret the dream, but he gives uh, a plan to Pharaoh. Verse 33. So now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and a wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. I love it. Years ago, Joseph would have said, so Pharaoh, put me in charge because I'm a discerning and young, wise man. But he doesn't. He's learned humility. He says, put someone in charge who's wise and discerning. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land and take one-fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food in these good years and store the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. And the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked the officials, Can we find anyone like this man in whom is the Spirit of God? And why does he attribute the Spirit of God to Joseph? 
because Joseph can interpret his dream and because Joseph has a wise financial plan. Can anyone find someone like this man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all of my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne am I greater than you. We got to know Joseph's whole life story when we get to Genesis 41, because Joseph's life story is one of a roller coaster of highs where everything seems great, and then moments where everything comes crashing down. He's experienced this before. So when he interprets the dream, it's nothing new to him. Seven years where things are great, followed by a crash. Seven years of famine that will happen. And his first instinct is what? Is to save. And he's specific about how much he's going to save. He doesn't tell Pharaoh, you know what? Tell the farmer, save whatever's left over. You know, if they have any money left at the end of the month, throw it into savings. If they have any grain left over, sure, let's put it in savings because you know what? A famine's going to happen and we should take care of it. No, he tells Pharaoh, tell the entire nation, every farmer, save 20% of your grain. Right off the top, put it away into savings so that after the seven years of plenty, when we go into the famine, we will have money. And that lets us know that saving money is a decision. It does not happen by accident. It doesn't happen by mistake. And like I said earlier, we all have the instinct that it's wise to save. I I don't think anyone would say, no, it's stupid to save. It's dumb to save. Why would anyone ever save? At least if we know why we're saving, if we know the right reason behind it. The truth is we just need to act on it. We need to be intentional and specific about how much we're saving and what we're saving for. Over the course of this teaching series, Many of us have started working on a budget. And if you haven't started working on a budget, I want to encourage you, start working on a budget. Use a budget. Tell your money where to go. I want to ask you, if you are working on a budget, does your budget include specific amounts that you're putting into savings each month? And does it specify what you're saving for? Do you know how much you're saving and do you know what you're saving for? Because those are key to actually being successful in saving. Are you saving for retirement? Are you saving for an emergency fund? Are you saving for a wedding or a car replacement? Are you saving for college? What are we saving for? If we don't know the answer to that question, our money will just float right away. Something will always be more important for us if we don't tell our money where to go, if we don't put it into savings. But if you decide to make saving a priority for you, If you decide to make it a priority now, there's a reward in the long run, which is this. Saving money will protect your family and those around you. And that's what we want. And notice what I said. It will protect your family and those around you. This is what I love about this story. Pick up in verse 48. Joseph collected all the food produced in the seven years of abundance in Egypt, and he stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. There was so much that they stopped keeping record of it because it was beyond measure. He couldn't save it. He couldn't couldn't count it all. By saving 20% for seven years, the Egyptians had enough in the years of plenty, using just the 80%, and they had enough to completely care for themselves in the harvest and the famine and to care for the rest of the world. And here's what happens later in the story. The rest of the known world starts to come to Egypt because Egypt is the only one that's not dying in this famine. And so they begin to care for other people because they have saved, because they were wise. See, if we start putting money into savings each month, over time it will become 
regular. It will become a habit. It will become totally natural to us. At first, it's going to feel hard for some of us to think, I'm putting some money away into savings. But if we do it over the course of time, it will build up and it will be there when we need it. As a result of Egypt being wise with their savings, they become a source of hope, not only to the Egyptians, but to the rest of the world. If we read on in the story, God actually uses this act that Joseph does in saving and investing to actually bring his prophecy to fulfillment. Joseph begins to rule over his brothers and his whole family, and he actually saves their family line from death, from starvation, from destruction. From that family line came Jesus Christ. So think about that for a second. You don't know what your choices will do in the future. Joseph said, we need to be wise, we need to save, we need to invest, because famine will come, difficult times will come, and when they come, we need to be ready. I want to care for my family, and I want to care for the world. I want to care for those around me. And here's what I would say as I close. Saving money puts us in the position to help others. The only difference between saving and hoarding is your attitude. Here's what a hoarder says. A hoarder says, I'm going to save so I have more. I'm going to save so that I can become richer, so I can have more toys and more stuff and go on more vacations. That's not an attitude that's honoring to God. I think this is why some people look down on savings, because they think that the attitude behind saving is, I just want to have more, more, more. That is not why we save. That won't bless God. That won't bless others. Here's why we save. If we we save with an attitude that I want to care for my family when uncertainty happens, I want to care for those around me. I want to plan for the future, and I want to be able to have funds available when God tells me to move, when God tells me what to do. I want to have money available to do it. Those are things that empower God, or that, that honor God, because saving empowers giving. One of my favorite saving categories in my personal budget that my wife Maria and I have, our favorite saving category is saving to give. It's our saving to give category, and we put money in there each month, Uh, When we just started out in marriage and in life, it was small and it's grown over time. But each month we put money in there. And here's what happens. When someone comes up with a need or we see a ministry we want to support that's above and beyond our tithe that we give first to the church, when someone comes with a need, we pray about it. And if God says support that, we've got money for it. And we can give generously. It's been incredible to be able to fix cars and to give people money for rent and and to, to support missionaries and to do these incredible things. But it would not happen if we weren't saving to give. Have you ever had that experience where you sensed God telling you to either go on a mission trip or care for someone, meet a need, support a ministry, and you just didn't have the money for it? God doesn't want that for you. Saving empowers giving. So in closing, I guess what I would say is life is full of unexpected ups and downs, even as we follow after God. But the hope is that God gives us a way to walk through the ups and the downs. He gives us clear biblical instruction to get out of debt, to stay out of debt, to save and invest, to be generous. So that when the things come, we will be a blessing, not just to our families, but to those around us. And it's an incredible way that's impactful. It opens the door for generosity. It it keeps us away from having one financial mix-up that sends us back into the bondage of slavery. Ultimately, it is a key to financial freedom. So let's talk about freedom for a minute, because the truth is God wants financial freedom for you. He does. But he wants freedom in all areas of life. The Bible says that we were slaves to sin, 
And Jesus came to free us from our slavery, to free us from the chains, to free us from the bondage so that we could experience wholeness and freedom. In just a second, we're going to enter into a time of communion. So I'd like the ushers to go ahead and go back and get the communion elements ready. But do you realize how incredible communion is? I don't think we, we always do because we take it every week and sometimes it just becomes a part of the service. Communion reminds us that God came in the flesh to forgive us of our sins, to draw us back to himself, to give us his Holy Spirit, to empower us to live the kind of life that he wants for us, to help us experience the freedom that he has. We sang that song earlier, nothing is impossible for you, God. You hold my world in your hands. And that is true to the extent that actually that God does hold our world in his hands, that we give ourselves completely to him. Nothing is impossible. God can do all things. He's incredible, and he wants to work in your life. If you're in a pit this morning, if you feel like, man, things are just horrible, I want you to know God's in that pit with you, and he's ready to help you climb out. He wants to walk with you, but you got to do two things. you got to give him that load to carry, and you got to give him yourself completely. If you're here this morning and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that is the most important thing you could do. Without Jesus, all this stuff is self-help, and self-help ultimately will not work. We need the Spirit of God living in us that empowers us to live the life that he calls us to live. And I want to tell you, Jesus couldn't love you more than he does right now. He looks at you and he loves you with an incredible love. It doesn't matter where you are or what you've done in your life, he loves you and he's saying, come to me. Enter into a relationship with me. Let me forgive you of your sins. Let me cleanse you. Let me make you whole. Let me carry your load so you don't have to do it yourself. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says this. It says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. It's for freedom that Christ came. And I want to ask you, as we take communion this morning, take the piece of bread and take the cup of juice, which Jesus says is my body and my blood, given and poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And I want to ask you to invite God to lead you in an incredibly intimate way today. If you feel distant from him, invite him to come back and be the center of your life. If you feel close with him, praise him and thank him for the work he's doing. And if you've never entered into a relationship with him, I'm going to pray right now, and I'm going to give you a chance to respond to him to give your life to Jesus. It's the most important decision you could ever make. I can tell you in 10 years, you will not know who won the Niners game today. But if you make a decision for Jesus, this will become an incredible day that you will never forget. So would you join me in this? Would you pray? And uh, as we do that, I'll just say, you know, if you want to give your life to Christ, you can pray this prayer with me. And at that point, you can go ahead and pray a prayer right where you're sitting with me. Would you join me as we pray? Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would continue to guide and to lead and to move in our community and in our lives. I pray for my friends who are here who might find themselves in a pit this morning and don't know how to get out. God, would you reveal to them that you're there with them and that you do have a way out, that you will make a way out, that even if they got themselves there by their own uh, bad choices, that you can move from this point and you can get them out. You can walk with them towards freedom. Would you be reminding my friends of that who need that today? Lord, for those of us who are walking this road to financial recovery, would you give us the strength and the courage to continue on, to to not stop, to not grow weary, to see the big picture and to look to the future as we follow after you. If you're here this morning and you've never made a decision to give your life to Jesus Christ, 
I'm going to pray this prayer. And if you sense God calling you today, and I can tell you he is calling you today because he loves you. You can, you can whisper this prayer after me. You can pray this simple prayer. You say, Lord Jesus, I know that you died on a cross to forgive me of my sins and to bring me back into a relationship with God. Today, I accept that gift. And I ask you to come and to lead me in my life. So would you come and would you fill me with your spirit this morning? And would you guide me every step of my life? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.